Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Love is indispensable. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and I pray that you will begin preparing our hearts for your word. I pray, Lord, as we approach your word, Holy Spirit, you would begin softening us, opening our minds, opening our ears. But Father, we also take this time to pray for our brothers and sisters who gather not only in this room, but in many other places across this city, across this nation, across this globe, that you, Christ, would go forth, that you would be made much of. We pray, Lord, that you would make us instruments of your peace. May we long to console rather than be consoled. Long to love rather than be loved. Long to understand rather than be understood. We pray, Lord, as well for our brothers and sisters in India and Brooklyn that we would see that we join in a song with them and with many others this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Love. True love. Sorry, let me start over. <clears throat> love. True love. Will follow you forever. Sorry. I, uh, how can you not start off a sermon about love quoting that, right? And, and I'll say I've, I've been fighting something this week, so most of this sermon was written in a Sudafed fog or a Dayquil fog. So there's stuff that I'm probably going to think is funny that you're not going to think is funny at all. Um, but if you're in that fog with me, then, you know, you'll laugh along as well. Um, today we are talking about love. We're talking about that love is a many-splendored thing. Love lift us up where we belong. All you need is love, to quote a few songs. Uh, this won't be the last time I probably do that and weave them in. Uh, I asked Dave to stay up here because I wanted to play a little game before uh, we kind of get into this, to name that tune. So he's going to play a few bars And uh, if you know it, shout out what you think the answer is. All right, Dave. When a man loves a woman, that's right. How many of you in your head right now were like, when a man loves a woman? Right, like, next one. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to join the worship team next week, by the way. Love story. Okay. Uh, Dave had to explain this song to me. I didn't know about that. 
how many young people knew that that was love story? No, and who admits? <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah, kill it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, "You should play this one. There's going to be people that get this song." <laughs> I, okay, I don't know it, but okay. All right, another one. Just sit here and listen to Dave play. <clears throat> Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it, buddy. <clears throat> we could keep going with that, right? Uh, but the idea is that we're inundated with love songs, right? There are so many things written out there about love. And I bet there are some that made it onto your playlist or made it onto your mixtape, right? This is how we used to send love mixes to people. And uh, it was frustrating, right? Because you had to hold the recorder up to the speaker and mom would come in and be like, no, I got to start over again, right? Because she said something in the background. And, and this probably had a lot of similar songs on it, right? There are many songs that are common that we know, but there's so many out there that there are probably some that are unique to you that, that when you heard maybe one of these ones, kind of whisked you back to some time and some place and with some person. There's, there's uh, a movie that I really love called uh, Moulin Rouge, and it's a musical about a love story. And the director um, decided, rather than write any music for it, there were so many love songs out there that he just took those and reworked them. into. So there's only one original song in the whole musical. But it, it, the point was to illustrate so much has been written musically or topically on this idea. We love the idea of love, to use a terrible phrase, right? We're infatuated with love. And this human longing is, is not something new, right? The, our human longing for true love has been around as long as we have. But I, I would argue that our search for love has been magnified in our culture because we've denied the transcendent God. Here's, here's, in essence, you and I can't shake this need for love. You and I can't shake this need for something outside of us. You can't shake this need for transcendence. But when you don't have a transcendent God, transcendent God in, in, in your worldview and in your system, you're going to put that meaning, that purpose, that identity somewhere else. And so the problem, the way that we wreck our lives is with misplaced love. We search for love in all the wrong places. We, thank you, there's one. We, we buy into this idea that you are nobody till somebody loves you. Right? You, it, it wrecks our lives because we've put misplaced meaning, we've put misplaced purpose, we've put misplaced who we are into someone or something or some idea that our love is aimed at. And to some degree, we have a weak view of understanding what love is. I'm going to paint it this way. You and I, at our core, our core motivations are to matter, to belong, to love, and to be loved. Our core desires are to matter, to belong, to love, and to be loved. Now, these play out differently for many of us. But the true aim of these, the true north of these, where they truly find their fulfillment is in God. 
However, our, our attempt to fill these motivations uh, fall out in countless ways. So in regards to love, we place unrealistic expectations or illusioned ideas of what love is on lovers and friends to fill these desires, to fill this void. And so this idolatrous attachment leads us to broken promises, leads us to rationalize indiscretions, and ultimately to broken vows. All because we think that didn't fulfill this void, this meaning, this purpose that I have, and so maybe over here will. In essence, love turns inward to me. Everything I do, I do it for me, is ultimately what it becomes. And so as it turns idolatrous, that is how we wreck our lives on the shores of disordered love. Now, now, previously when I preached in Ephesians, I defined love and self-love as the constant pursuit of otherness in someone else, or self-love, the constant pursuit of mindness in someone else. And I want to touch on the story of, of the, the love triangle between Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. You can find that in Genesis 29. Uh, beginning in verse 16 and following. And Rick recently unpacked this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But I think we get to see a small aspect of how love wrecks your life. Disordered love wrecks your life. It's a fascinating story. It's a, it's a, it's a story that we see our core motivations in, the, in Leah and Rachel and, J- and Jacob attempting to be filled in someone or something that leads to pain, that leads to hurt, that doesn't lead to fulfillment, that leads us to the songs like Love Hurts or Love Stinks. Boom, how many more is that? Thank you, sorry. That was one of those Sudafed fog moments where like, I wrote that and I was like, oh, that works. And then, you know, it doesn't, but I blame the Sudafed. So the story goes, right, Jacob is heading to his uncle Laban, and it's not because it's Thanksgiving or Christmas. He's not going to see family. He's on the run. He's got nowhere else to go, right? He's, he, he never really had his father's love. He lost his mother's love, and it would seem that he didn't have a grasp on God's love for him. So he shows up at Laban's house, and he sees one of his daughters, and, and he see, he's incredibly attracted to her. And so in his longing, in his lust for her, what he's saying to himself, if I finally had her, something would be right in my life. If I had her, it would fix things. Jacob's longing wasn't really for Rachel, but for himself. He was fixated on her to fill a void that he had felt. This gets back to what I said about placing a transcendent longing on something or someone that can't hold that weight, that can't hold that meaning, that can't hold that purpose. But the triangle unfolds more, right, as we see Leah giving birth. He ends up marrying both of them, and Leah gives birth, and Rachel is unable to give birth. But Jacob's love is aimed at Rachel, not Leah, and so Leah herself is dealing with a longing for love that destroys her. She, she names the children she is having after these themes of hope and longing, surely he will love me now. Surely if I, if, I, if I just have children for Jacob, then my husband will come to love me. My life will be fixed. The void will be filled. I will find meaning and purpose 
and identity. Then you have Rachel, unable to have kids. So in a culture, feeling that her meaning and her purpose is failing her. And so a fear that she will lose the love of Jacob. And it drives her to jealousy. In this entire triangle, you see everyone in a constant pursuit of the mindness in someone else. You see misplaced meaning, misplaced hope, impossible expectations, all to find love in and through means that ultimately lead to brokenness, that ultimately lead to becoming wrecked. And while we may not see ourselves necessarily in this lover's quarrel, I think there are a plethora of ways our love, or at least our modern definition of love, of romantic love, can function like a drug for us. Do you find yourself feeling more complete or more whole when someone is on your arm? Does that make you feel good about yourself? Or maybe if I no longer feel love for someone, I don't need to love them or be with them anymore. All of this is rooted in a void that we have in us One of those motivations, to love and to be loved, but the object of that just can't hold the weight of that transcendent love that we're called to. To go back to Moulin Rouge, there's a a line in the movie that, that says, the greatest thing that you will ever learn is to love and to be loved in return. That's accurate partially. Because it only gets at this misplaced object of love in a person that can never measure up to fill that void. And I think part of this could be due to the fact that I think we have a weak view or a weak understanding of what love is. In essence, we're, we're, we're all wearing lenses, we're all wearing frames that, that cause us to see the world and that influence us and inform Uh, the way we think about love and the way we view love and what will fulfill us. There was a movie in 2009 that came out called 500 Days of Summer. Maybe you've seen it. Um, It's uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel. And uh, it was an independent film. And if you haven't seen it, the summary of it is a young man was, was smitten by a girl named Summer. And so the story is all about their relationship over the course of 500 days. His pursuit of her, his, his love for her, how he was more in love with the idea of her that she could be his only one, that she could be his perfect one. And a lot of people loved this movie. A lot of people really loved it, and they loved the idea that, wow, he, he, he pursues her, he loves her, he's passionate for her. If I could have a love like that. But later in an interview, Gordon-Levitt gives an interview and he says that his character is not a romantic role model. His character was selfish. His character was in constant pursuit of the mindness in summer. And then he encourages people, go back and watch it with those new lenses and see just how selfish my character was. This is a key thought for us, I think, because... Sometimes I think we unwittingly and unconsciously begin to define love and look at love through miscolored or rose-colored lenses. And we begin to say that to love is to feel love. I want to feel someone love me. I want to feel love for someone. And I think that's a small view of love. 
I think that's a weak view of love. It leaves us wanting. It leaves us longing for something more. Now, don't hear me say that it's either this love or that love. I'm not putting it out there that it's either romantic love or some other type of love. What I'm saying is there's nuance to our understanding of love. But when we only see love as romantic love, it's going to wreck our lives. It doesn't mean that there isn't room for that in our relationships. But if that's all there is, at its core, it's self-love. At its core, it's going to wreck you. C.S. Lewis, I'll quote when I do uh, weddings, this this passage in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and he unpacks the illustration how these two kind of work together. And he says that romantic love is the spark that gets the engine going, but the engine runs and it hums along with a deeper, different understanding of love, an agape love, a selfless love, a love that is a constant pursuit of the otherness in someone else. Before we get to that, I think we need to see that putting your desires, putting the weight of your core motivations to matter, to belong, to love, and to be loved, putting your deepest hopes and longing on a person or the idea of a future relationship is going to lead to a wrecked life. It's going to crush him or her. It's going to distort your life and theirs. No one can give you all that your soul needs. At least no one physically. And, and, and when the illusion fades and when the dis- disillusionment, disillusionment happens, when the disappointment comes with love, we have to see it on its cosmic transcendent level. We have to see that we were meant for something more, for something bigger. But a lot of times when that happens, we respond in a couple of different ways. We respond uh, a few ways. First, you can simply blame what is causing the disappointment and you can move on to what you think will fix it. You can blame the other. You can blame yourself, stating that you have somehow failed. Everybody's happy, but, but you seem to, something seems to be wrong with you. Or you can blame the world. This is the all men are terrible. All women are terrible. It hardens you, leaves you cynical, or you can turn to God. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that number four is the right answer, but we probably camp out in one of these other areas more often than not. I tend to camp out in the self-loathing aspect and blaming, and this isn't just about love, this can be about many other things, right? But we need to reorient, re-aim, realign our life toward God. If no love in this world could satisfy you, then the probable explanation is you were made for something more, some other world, as C.S. Lewis says. So part of reorienting our love, part of reorienting, reorienting our understanding toward God is beginning to change the frames, beginning to see the, 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 the frames that the world has given us to ones that God gives us through his word. And that's why I had 1 Corinthians 13 read. There are many, many places Uh, we could go, but we need to see a deeper understanding of what to love and to be loved means. We need a new definition of love, or in reality, an old definition of love. And I want to quote a few uh, poets from the 90s to help us redefine uh, love. Pulling out my big black book, because when I need a word to find, that's where I look. 
So I moved to the L's, quick, fast, in a hurry, threw on my specs, thought my vision was blurry. I looked again, but to my dismay, it was black and white with no room for gray. You see, a big V stood beyond my word, and yo, that's when it hit me that love is a verb. Boom. Down with the DC talk. Down with the DC talk. Some of you picked that up right off the first line. Some, it took a little bit longer. They, They get it. As terrible as 90s Christian rap was, they get it. In other words, the love as we see portrayed in Scripture is one of action. Is one of giving yourself away for someone else. I mean, we could, we could simply camp out in this first phrase, love is patient. We could just camp out here, love is patient. Patience is not a virtue focused on what you want. Patience is focused on the other. And patience is not necessarily a feeling, right? Normally the feeling that happens is impatience, this kind of, oh my gosh, they're, they're inconsiderate of my time. What matters to me? Patience is an action toward someone else. It's a verb. You know, if you want to counter the way love can wreck your life, try releasing someone from your expectations and act out of patience toward them. And then take that question and plug in any other word here. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. You want to counter the way love wrecks your life? Try releasing someone from what you want from them and seek what they want. There was a show that um, was on Fox maybe 10 or so years ago. It kind of uh, had a cult following behind it. It was a comedy about a dysfunctional family. Uh, and and the, the, the members of the family all seemed to be focused on what they wanted, what they could get out of life, what they could get out of love, what they could get out of relationship. And the show was titled Arrested Development uh, because all the family members suffered from arrested development. They only cared about themselves. But you had one, one sibling, Michael Bluth, who seemed to be the only one attempting to help the family. Not that he didn't have his own issues. This was a secular show after all. But the family kept showing or kept revealing that they didn't deserve the help that he was giving them. They didn't deserve the patience, the kindness. And even after Michael did something selfless, it went unappreciated. That's a pretty accurate picture, not Michael, but the rest of the family of us. That's the picture we get of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. We don't really get heroes in Scripture. We don't really see uh, uh, the, the heroes in Scripture. In reality, what we see is we don't deserve God's grace. We don't seek it, and often when it comes, we don't appreciate it. It shows us a different type of love. It calls us to a different kind of love. A love that will set you free. A love that will break the chains that bind you. But that has to be shown to us. It's got to be shown to us. Because it's really hard to wrap my head around it. I mean, look again at 1 Corinthians 13. How in the world do I love like that? If that was a checklist, I would fail. 
But the beauty of all of this is that God does show us this love lived out in himself. Romans 2.4 puts it this way. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? In other words, don't you see how much God loves you? He's kind with you. He's patient with you. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 and, and all these passages do have implications for us, but I think the biggest thing is, is to point us to the amazing love of the Father, to point us to the fact that God's love for you and for me is more than warm, fuzzy feelings. His love is deep, not just because He tells us, but because He shows us. He's patient with us. He's kind with us. He doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And it's all acted out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. If his love for us was just warm, fuzzy feelings, on the night of Christ's betrayal, would he have made it to the cross? If it was about feeling love for you? But if love was a verb, he modeled it and showed it. It took him all the way to the cross to act out his love for us. So yes, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is to love and to be loved in return, but that's lacking still. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is you are loved. Now go love. Go be patient. Go be kind. Go be gracious. Be not proud or boastful. Be honoring others because he first loved you. In Colossians 3, we get this image of of clothing yourself in kindness, clothing yourself in compassion and humility, and then forgiving as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love. Put it on. Act it out. Live it out. Do you, do you want to keep your life from being wrecked on the shores of disordered love? Look to Christ. Look to his love. See how God's love is calling some of you for the first time, some of you for the millionth time, to turn away from this ridiculous obsession with self-love. To turn away from our sin. To turn away from it being about me. See in his love as it calls you out of your self-love. Tim Keller in the book Counterfeit Gods poses a question that I think is fitting for us. In essence, he says, how can we know God's love so deeply that we release our lovers and spouses from our stifling expectations? Great question. How can we know God's love so deeply? Look to him. Every day, see how deep his love for us is. Every day, run to Christ and see a love that is patient. See a love that is kind. See a love that probably has many unmet expectations that he has for us. This is the power to overcome our idolatries. This is the power to re-aim our hearts, to change our lenses. 
the power to love our spouses and our loved ones in a way that cares more about them than it does what we get out of it. In a way that reflects Christ's love. That's how we survive. That's how love does not wreck us. And whether you've never found a romantic partner or you have lost one, hear Christ say, I am the true bridegroom. I am the only one who will ever give you your heart's desire. I am the only one to show you what it means to matter, to show you what it means to belong, to show you what it means to love and to be loved. And for married couples, this frees us. This should free us. And it should free our spouses from crushing unrealistic expectations. For unrealistic meaning, unrealistic purpose, unrealistic identity that was only meant to be found in one. This is how you and I know God's love. And oh, how deep the Father's love for us is. How vast beyond all measure. It's in his love that we find a love that won't break our hearts, but dismiss our fears. And so we run to him as he stands with open arms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you would love us and that your love is patient, is kind, doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It is always pursuing us. Forgive us, Lord, for how often we buy into the lie that, that love is about me, about me feeling loved, about me being loved. May we be a people who act out our love. May we be a people who free others from stifling expectations and point others to your love. Father, may we respond to your call. How wonderful your love is. How wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient you are. Not to leave us where we are, but to call us out of our sin, to call us out of our self-love into relationship with you. May someone here today hear that call for the first time, and may I hear it for the millionth time. And Lord, as we give you our tithes and our offerings, they're but a fraction of the many blessings and gifts that you have given to us. Lord, it's one way that you've shown your love to us, and how can we not be generous back to you? How can we not act out this sign of love to you? And Lord, as we give, as, as we give our tithes and our offerings, use them for your kingdom. Use them for your glory. Not to make Stonebridge's name great. Not to make my name or our names great. But to make your name great. That the love of Christ would go forth. And many would see the beauty of our God. In your name we pray. Amen.